Father in heaven, we ask for your mercy as we approach your word. We understand that apart from your Holy Spirit, we're not going to understand your scripture. We're not going to be able to apply it to our lives. We believe what you said to the disciples, that apart from me, you can do nothing. We understand that to be the truth. Not There's no exaggeration there. <clears throat> We'd ask for you to give us a, a spirit of knowledge and wisdom to understand your word and apply it to our own lives in Jesus' name. <clears throat> so we left off last week with Judas revealing himself and being revealed as the betrayer. Um, we saw that he had a choice every step of the way, that this wasn't forced upon him. Uh, there's things in Scripture that we think looks as though someone was forced into something and didn't have a choice, but as we saw last week, it's pretty easy to discern that, no, they did have a choice, although in some of the cases there came a point where they'd made a choice and God held them to it. In Pharaoh's case, for example, we saw that <clears throat> he had hardened his own heart through the first three or four plagues, and after that, it says that God hardened his heart. He had already made his decision, and God held him to it so that he would be able to destroy Egypt completely with these plagues and let his people see his glory. He was judging Egypt and leading Israel, and he held the Pharaoh to that insane rebellion all the way to the end. So we get a laugh out of seeing him <clears throat> drown his whole army in the Red Sea following his insane rebellion. Um, but the reality is those were you know, thousands of real people that drowned right there, and the, the Israelis saw them washing up as corpses on the shore. They saw this all happen. <clears throat> and those people had choices. So Judas had a choice. He made a choice. He continually made that choice. And after <clears throat> what we see in John 13, <clears throat> 26, and 27, where Jesus gave the sop to Judas, and it says that after the sop, Satan entered into Judas. He's, the only, he's one of the only two people in the scripture who was actually possessed by Satan in person, not just some demon. <clears throat> so from that moment forward, there's only a few hours left that Jesus has to accomplish several things. One of them is he had to prepare his disciples for his own departure. <clears throat> He had to assure them that he was coming back so that they knew they hadn't just been abandoned. He had to teach his prime commandment, the, the love one another, because that covered everything else. <clears throat> he had to prepare them for his death so they weren't going to just despair when they saw him seemingly defeated. <clears throat> he had to teach what to expect regarding the Holy Spirit. We're not going to go into that today, not much, just a taste uh, that's this whole book's written on the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the believer's life. Uh, in fact, tons of books written on it. Some of them pretty goofy, but but you can write books of serious godly teaching on what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. <clears throat> uh, so next week we'll touch on that. But they needed to know who is he, what will his ministry be, and how could they know the difference between his influence in their life as opposed to some other spirit. <clears throat> and they had to make sure that they understood that his commands could not be carried out by their own strength, but only as he worked through them. Finally, Jesus had to pass through Gethsemane 
and the betrayal by Judas to face the trial on the cross. He knew that his disciples were going to flee and abandon him in that event, and he had to prepare them to know that that was not a surprise, that when they fell, when their failure happened, it wasn't a surprise, and that they weren't losing because of that. <clears throat> it was only proof that they couldn't function without him. And it's, he'd already warned them of that. He'd warned them actually several times. So let's take a look at these things in order. If you'll turn to John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, you see the famous passage, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. John 13, 34 and 35. Pretty important passage. Uh, This agape love that he's describing here is the one that is explained in 1 Corinthians 13. There, the King James uses the word charity to differentiate between the agape love and the phileo love, which is just the, the friendliness that we're to have for one another, the brotherly love, and any other kind of love. There's four different kinds of love mentioned in Scripture, uh, five kind of, but uh, four primary ones. And the agape one is the one that's always given in a command form. It's always told that this is the one that we're told to do. <clears throat> Brotherly love a few times is commanded, but agape is not a suggestion. It's not an admonition. It's a command. <clears throat> and he says, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. Okay. Do you suppose they really understood at that moment what he meant? They knew the word. I told you in the past, I I was working with a bunch of transients, and one of them happened to be a native Greek speaker, nasty sort of guy. He was uh, just a denizen off the streets of Portland. He's probably dead today. Uh, But I asked him, uh, his name was George. I don't know his last name, but I asked him, George, can you tell me the difference between phileo and agapao? Phileo I knew as immense brotherly love, and agapao I knew as the love, the, the agape love, that, but these are the infinitive verbs. And he says, uh, uh, phileo, phileo means I, I love you, you're my brother, I love you. But agapao uh, it means I give you my heart, I give you my soul, I love you. And I thought, that's pretty good explanation, explanation from a guy who doesn't know the Lord, but he knows his language. Okay, so these guys knew that. They knew at least that. That's their language. See, did they know how to apply it? Did they know what it meant for him to say, a new commandment I give unto you? Probably not, because they're going to find out later they couldn't do it apart from the Holy Spirit working through them. And they they were not indwelled by the Holy Spirit yet. That didn't happen yet. I think they heard the words, and they understood the literal meanings of the words, but they probably couldn't imagine how it could be applied. <clears throat> Somehow, Peter caught on right away that Jesus was getting ready to leave. In <clears throat> chapter 13, verse 36, <clears throat> right after his prime commandment that we love one another with the agape love, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, whither goest thou? Somehow Peter had caught on that Jesus was getting ready to leave. Where are you going, Lord? And Jesus said, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later, afterward. 
And Peter said, well, why can't I follow you now? I'd, I'd lay down my life for you. I'll die for you. <clears throat> and Jesus answered pretty gently. He says, will you die for me? Will you lay down your life for me? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, the, the cock, the rooster, shall not crow until you have denied me thrice. Now, as gently as it was delivered, that was still a pretty hard thing for Peter to hear. I'm sure he thought, that is not so. I would never deny you. And in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other disciples chimed in and said, no, 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 we'd lay down our lives for you. We would die for you. We would not deny you. We'll never leave you. They're all really sure that, that they were steadfast, that they were going to follow Jesus. <clears throat> but that was in their flesh. Peter was confident in his strength and his ability to follow Jesus, and he argued, and Jesus very gently laid him down and said, no, you can't. <clears throat> so he had to prepare them all for his departure, and he didn't belabor the doubts that Peter had. Peter had doubts and fears and so forth. <clears throat> but we start chapter 14. He says, let not, excuse me, I'm going to have to hold this where I can see it. <clears throat> let not your heart be troubled, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And whither I go, you know. Peter just asked, where are you going? Jesus didn't answer it. Now he's answering. He says, you know where I'm going, and you know the way. And Thomas said, no, we don't. Verse, verse uh, 5 there, Thomas said unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? <clears throat> and Jesus said, here's another fa famous verse that everybody quotes. Jesus said unto him, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes unto the Father but by me. Now, did that explain everything they needed to know? I don't think so. They heard the words, they accepted them as being true, but they probably were still completely puzzled. Because Philip's next question is like he changed the subject, seemingly, from our perspective. He says, Lord, show us the Father and it will suffice us. <clears throat> Actually, verse 7, first says, Jesus is still talking. He says, if you had known me, you should have known my Father also. And from henceforth you do know him, and you have seen him. And Philip said, well, show us. Show us the Father. That'll be enough. Jesus said to him, have I known? Have I been with you all this time, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father, and the hour. And how sayest thou, then, show us the Father? Believe thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And the words which I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father who dwells in me, he does the works. <clears throat> believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else, believe me for the works' sake. You've seen what I've done. Believe it for that sake. If you can't understand the words, then understand the works. You've seen it happen. You've seen the, the blind given their sight. You've seen the lame healed. You've seen demons cast out. You've seen people rise from the dead. Believe the works if you're having trouble with the words. Put your trust in what you've seen happen. <clears throat> now there's an important thing happening here. When Philip asked Jesus to show, us, show them the Father, Jesus 
replied by saying, Philip, you've known me all this time. How are you now asking me to show you the Father? <clears throat> if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Now, I'm sure that rattled their brains. It certainly rattled mine for years. I tried to understand the deity of Christ. This is a fairly central doctrine, doctrine to the believers in Christ, to the followers of Jesus, because this is the one that all the cults deny, all of them. They'll say, well, he was a God, or he was a lesser God. He was kind of like God. No, he was God. You see, you're, you're down to three choices. He was either the almighty God, or he was some kind of a lesser God, or he wasn't a God at all. And you have to decide, because Jesus said he was the almighty God. In fact, it was predicted that way. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 says that, the, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Okay, that one just fries me. I just think, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. The Son is the Father? How does that happen? Jesus said, the Father who sent me is greater than I. Okay, then how can they be how can the Son be the Father? I don't know. I have to teach it faithfully because that's what God's Word says. It does not require that I understand it. How many of you remember learning to tell time when you were a little kid? Some of you remember. Some of you still don't know, know how, evidently. <clears throat> I was old enough that there was no such thing as a digital clock. You learned to tell time by where the hands on the clock were. And I remember when my mom was working in the kitchen, her teaching me to tell time by the kitchen clock. You know, she didn't ask me to explain how that electric clock worked. And she didn't explain, she didn't ask me to explain why there were 60 seconds in a minute and 60 minutes in an hour. Uh, she didn't explain, ask me to explain any of that stuff. All she wanted me to do, be able to do is look at that clock and tell what time it was. And I learned. Okay. We aren't told everything. We're told some things that we simply have to accept and say, okay, this is how you do this. This is how you use this truth. I don't have to be able to explain the Trinity. It's a fact. I don't have to explain it. <clears throat> I know there are people in this world that think they ought to be able to understand everything. The fact is they don't understand the cell phone they've got in their pocket. They use it every day by faith, and they haven't got the foggiest idea how it works. If they see one broken open, they say, that's a broken cell phone. Okay, well, what's wrong with it? It's broken. Yeah, but what's wrong with it? Why won't it work? Yeah, I can see the battery's still there. I can see all those little green boards and little dots of silver and stripes of gold. How does it work? Well, I don't know, but it's broken. Okay? See, they don't understand anything about it. And the few who do... You know, they're not going to bother trying to explain it to you because they know you're not going to get it. Okay. There's things that we're called to accept. And one of these is the promise of the Spirit. <clears throat> one of the things that Jesus said, and this is an important verse. If you haven't memorized this verse, please do. John 14, 16. <clears throat> he's already told him he's the way, the truth, and the life. He's told him that nobody approaches the Father except through him. He's told them that he and the Father are one. Now in verse 16, he says, I and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you for a while. Is that what it says in your Bible? 
What's it say? Forever. Forever. This is an important concept because there are people that teach you that you can lose this relationship with Jesus. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit is going to stay with you forever. So if God ever changes his mind and sends you to hell, you get to take the Holy Spirit with you. Uh, nobody's comfortable with that idea. But this is what it says, that the Holy Spirit is going to be with you forever. Over in Ephesians chapter 1, it says that he is the down payment, the earnest of your inheritance until the day of the re uh, redemption of the purchased possession. He's not going to lose you. <clears throat> the Greek word that's translated comforter here is parakletos. It means one called alongside to help, like a rescue swimmer. And the Navy trains rescue swimmers, and the Coast Guard trains rescue swimmers. It means somebody who they're confident enough in this guy's swimming ability that they can dump him out of a helicopter next to a guy that's about to drown on a capsized boat way off in rough seas and expect him to swim to that guy, get that guy secured, get him into a harness and hoist him out, and the guy's still in the water that helped him. Okay. It's, it's a seagoing tug that can strap itself with huge steel cables to a, a vessel that's in trouble and tow it into port. Okay. That's what a paracletos is, the comforter, the one called alongside to help. He has bound himself to you and is going to be with you for the, for the duration. He's going to get you through those tough times, those hard times, the painful times in life. And some of you have been in the Wednesday night Bible study. You remember we went through Genesis. In Genesis chapter 24, we saw the servant of Abraham going off to Haran to bring back a bride for Isaac. And we saw that whole story, and we saw how the the, the servant sent to bring back the bride was a parallel of the Holy Spirit bringing back the bride to Jesus. We saw that once the bride price had been paid, by the way, Jesus paid the bride price at the cross. You can think about that. Once the bride price had been paid and Rebecca had agreed to go, the servant wasted no time. He says, we're leaving. And they started their hike across the desert. They had 10 camels, a bunch of men that were managing the camels. I don't know how many men. There was Rebecca, a young woman, very young, and two female servants, at least two. It says her servants, but it doesn't say how many. <clears throat> Once they had left town, they were stuck. They were either going to be safe with these men that they'd never met before, traveling across a desert, or they were in deep, deep trouble. They never saw home again. They couldn't turn around and run home. The desert would have eaten them up. It's a very unforgiving desert. But the fact is that once the bride price was paid and once Rebecca had agreed to go, the men in that caravan, particularly the lead servant, but all of them, saw that young lady as the most precious commodity on earth. Their only job was to get her home to Isaac. If she chose to run away, they would bring her back. There's no way she, they'd let her get away. If somebody came and tried to steal her, they would fight to the death to, to protect her. They were going to bring, the, bring home the bride. The Holy Spirit looks at you that way. He's going to bring home the bride. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to lose you. So if you've ever had any doubts in your mind regarding the permanence of your relationship with Jesus, this is it. That until the day you see him face to face, the Holy Spirit sees you as the ultimate value, he will not lose you, he will not leave you. You're going to come home to Jesus.
that's something to think about. As far as I'm going to go on the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> probably the primary thing we need to look at is that there's a new relationship here. Let's skip forward to <clears throat> John chapter 16, verses 15 and 17. <clears throat> Jesus said, I'm changing the game here. Um, John chapter 16, verses 15 through 17, he says, Henceforth, from now on, I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it unto you. These things I command you, that you love one another. <clears throat> said servants don't know what their master is doing. They don't know the plan. And Jesus has been revealing the plan of the Father to his disciples as his friends and his partners in the work. Back in John chapter 4, uh, chapter 4 verse 34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to finish his work and they are now partners in his work he carries that out to the very last thing the last thing he commands them is to keep that going to be his witnesses go out into the world and share the gospel that's his last request and right here he's saying you're you're joining me in the work you're no longer my servants you're my companions my friends you're <clears throat> not just my servants but he reminded them that they didn't choose him. He chose them. <clears throat> you remember back in John chapter 1 and 2 that, that they saw him. They were intrigued by him. They, they kind of wanted to know more about him. But the fact is, he chose his 12 disciples. <clears throat> they didn't choose him. They didn't say, yep, I'm going to be one of the 12. Yes, sir. No, they couldn't do that. They didn't have that authority. Jesus chose them. We saw last week that... <clears throat> Jeremiah was chosen before he was born, before he was conceived. In fact, if you ever wonder about the, you know, when a person becomes a human being, God says, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you and ordained you to the work that I'm sending you to do. Jeremiah chapter 1, you can read it. God knew who you were from eternity past. But what we find out as we read on, is that we can't do that job without him. <clears throat> he chose them for a purpose. And verse 16 says that he chose them and ordained them to go bring forth fruit and that their fruit should remain. So we're not just talking about the fruit of the Spirit that we read about in Galatians 5, 22 and 23 because that's a transient thing. Today I can be bearing the fruit of the Spirit and tomorrow forget all about it and I'm in trouble with God because I'm just rolling in my sin again. Okay? What kind of fruit remains? What he's talking about is bearing the fruit of reproduc reproduction. They're reproducing spiritual people, new children of God in the world. That's lasting fruit. If you've led somebody to Christ, you're going to see them throughout eternity and be glad every time you see them. He says, I'm ordained that you should bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. <clears throat> he wanted them to reproduce in the people of the world and he reminded them then that they were to love one another and he warned them that the world would not respond favorably <clears throat> as we read on from there he says 
in verse 19, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 18, he says, If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they've persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If, you, if they have kept my saying, they'll also keep yours. Okay. <clears throat> we, they were warned ahead of time how the world was going to respond. He warned the disciples to be persecuted for the sake of their relationship with him. And he said that whoever hates Jesus hates the Father also. Well, back in John 5.23, we saw that the reverse of that is also true. That in John 5.23, it says, Whoso honor, honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father who sent him. Remember, John 5.22 says this, that the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. And then, verse 23 says, Whoso honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father who sent him. They truly are one. And if a person chooses to dishonor Jesus, they're dishonoring the God the Father. But he went on to tell them that there was a time coming in John chapter uh, actually it's right here I think nope I'll get to it. <clears throat> There's a time coming when everyone who kills you will think that he is doing service to God. But in John chapter 17, verses 21 through 23, he says that he is to be in them, and they are in, in him, and that the world would reject them in the same manner as they rejected him. And he warned them that the time would come when anyone who killed a disciple of Jesus was imagining that he was doing service to God. And I seem to have lost where I saw that. <clears throat> Ah, here it is. It's chapter 16, verse 2. Verses 1, 2, and 3. He says, These things I have spoken unto you, that you should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time comes that whoever kills you will think that he does God's service. And these things they will do unto you, because they have not known the Father nor me. Now, <clears throat> these things were already fulfilled long before us uh, in the person of the Apostle Paul. Well, excuse me, Saul of Tarsus, who was literally uh, chasing down the Jewish believers and hauling them off to be jailed or executed or whatever they did with them. <clears throat> and there were a lot of other unbelieving Jews who attacked the new believers. There were riots. And down through the centuries, that's continued, that, that the false churches and the uh, false believers have always seen the true believers as an enemy and they've come to the conclusion that murdering Christians and burning Christians at the stake and things like that was a way to impress God. <clears throat> they thought they were fighting the good fight. They were honoring God. And Jesus said, no, they're not. They're doing that because they don't know me. I just read this morning the young fellow in Canada is a believer enrolled in a Catholic school where supposedly they teach the values of Christ and he had, the female students had his friends had complained to him that boys were using the girls bathroom 
and he complained to the powers that be there saying that God says there is a difference between male and female, that there's only two genders, and those boys have no business in the girls' bathroom. He was kicked out of school for that. He went back and tried to attend classes anyway and was arrested and charged with trespassing because he taught God's word in a Catholic school. That was just yesterday, or this last week. <clears throat> so the stuff's going to keep on happening, and that's, that's little stuff, you know. In the Islamic countries, people are being mutilated and murdered and beheaded and so forth for the cause of Christ. That's going to continue. It's not just a passing fancy that only the first century believers had to endure. It's been the conflict of the ages. That's the name of a song, too. That's why I asked you about that this morning, Jen. It's the conflict of the ages, and it's going to culminate in the Great Tribulation. We're not going to be here for it, but it's going to keep building up until that's what happens. Yes, we know who wins. We've read the last chapter, and we can say, well, I read the last chapter. I know who wins. Yeah, that's right, but things could get a little tough between now and then. Okay, are you ready for that? Finally, I'm going to back up a bit. In John chapter 14, verse 27, if you'd turn there, Jesus left a legacy of peace. John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Now, that's a two-part package. The peace that Jesus leaves is a two-part package. We have the peace with God, and we have the peace of God. They're not the same. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, being justified, that means declared righteous by God, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, you may think, well, I was never an enemy with God. Well, actually, yeah, you were. Romans chapter 5, verse 10 says that while we were yet enemies, Jesus died for us, the just for the unjust. Okay. But Romans 5, 1 says that being declared righteous, being justified, being declared clean by faith, we have peace with God. Peace with God. Now back in, we read in John chapter 15, verse 3, Jesus speaking to the remaining 11 disciples. He says, now ye, you plural, you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. They had believed his word and God had cleaned them. They were declared righteous by God. So they were at peace with God. But what he's trying to give them right now in John 14, 27, and they're not really going to latch on to it until Acts chapter 2. But what he's bequeathing to them right now is the peace of God. He said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto thee, give I unto you, <clears throat> let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So we're called to experience the peace of God on a daily, moment-by-moment basis. And that's what Jesus was offering. We see that today in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, where he says, be anxious for nothing. Or King James says, be careful, be full of care for nothing. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, peace of God, which uh, 
is beyond understanding, passes understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, the peace that we're to have is a supernatural peace that the world's going to look at and say, why are you not going out of your mind with anxiety right now? Because Jesus is with me and he's enough. Okay, and that's easy to say. But when the going gets rough, that's when it has to be a reality. They didn't fully experience that until the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2. They feared for their lives. They were in hiding up until that time. But that was before the Holy Spirit came. You see, this new relationship blossomed on the day of Pentecost. <clears throat> before the Spirit was given, the 11 disciples fled when Jesus was arrested. They were in grief. They, they thought he was dead. Their best friend, their master, their teacher, the one they thought was the Messiah, was dead and gone. They lost. That They thought he was the king to come, and now he's dead. What, what are we going to do now? They were afraid that they would be the next victims of the evil leaders in Jerusalem. And it says they were in hiding for fear of the Jews. That's why they're in that upper room hiding <clears throat> for fear of the Jews. But afterward, after Acts chapter 2, when they all received the Holy Spirit, and all the believers received the Holy Spirit that day, Afterwards, they preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And when they were arrested and beaten and imprisoned, they, they counted it a privilege. They weren't scared. They weren't hiding anymore. They weren't at all discouraged by all this mistreatment that they were getting. And the result of their collective, courageous testimony was that thousands of other people received Jesus as their Savior and also received the Holy Spirit and also became courageous witnesses for Jesus. And the ancient world was turned upside down by the change. I didn't say that. The enemies of Jesus said that. This is, these guys are turning the world upside down. Oh, yeah? You like that? No, you don't? Oh, hmm. You see, since that time, everyone who believes is immediate and indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. We see that in a couple of places. One, in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, it flat says, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. Okay, in this age... Uh, the Old Testament, if you have the Holy Spirit, you're some kind of a special prophet of God. Most people did not. Most believers did not. During the period of the Acts, there was a transition period where there was a little bit of laxity as to wh whether they received the Spirit the moment they believed, or uh, some of them, when they were baptized, there's very seldom that, but there's a few different situations in the book of Acts, and really all it proves to us is the Holy Spirit is God, and he can do things pretty much the way he wants to. He's the master, not us. We don't put out rules for the Holy Spirit. He puts them out for us. But in this age, anyone who believes is immediately indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, whether they know it or not, the other place we see that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. He says that we have all been baptized into the body of Christ by one Holy Spirit. We've been made to drink into that one Spirit, that all believers have that in common. You don't receive the Holy Spirit later. There isn't some second blessing thing. No, that is part of the package. <clears throat> so they were prepared, but they didn't feel prepared. Jesus only had a few hours to prepare his disciples for his departure, and he used it wisely. He used it completely uh, intentionally. 
Uh, and the result was that they were prepared even though they didn't feel prepared. They were still horrified when he was when he was crucified. They were still terrified when he was arrested. They were still devastated by his death. But they had been prepared, and they were. They just didn't know it. Jesus gave them the information and the encouragement they needed. However, until the Spirit was given, they were not able to put the teaching to use. And that's still the case for us, too. Most of us know a good deal more about the Scripture than we're able to put into practice. Anybody here, are you all putting into practice everything you know in the Scripture? You are? I'd like you to get up here and teach me then, because I'm not. There's a whole lot that I know from Scripture, and I look at it, and I shake my head, and I say, I don't, I don't know how to do that, Lord. Okay. Well, they didn't know how to do it either. But we find ourselves powerless to apply it in practice. We were told in advance that apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit using you to reach into the lives of those around you, it simply can't be done. Yeah, you know the gospel. You feel timid about sharing it with somebody else. Well, then you're going to need to submit yourself to the Holy Spirit and allow him to do it through you. Because that's the way it works. And it was for them too. When Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing, he was not exaggerating. He was telling the simple truth. They literally could not accomplish anything for God unless he was allowed to do it through them by the Holy Spirit. So we've been prepared. Now we need to learn to walk. We who have placed our trust in Jesus as our Savior were already indwelt by his Holy Spirit. But as believers were commanded to walk in the Spirit, John, uh, Galatians 5.16 says, Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the desires of the flesh. <clears throat> That's a day-by-day, moment-by-moment thing. We're to ask him to lead us, and then we're to follow his leading. That's all. It means moment by moment confessing when we sin, receiving his promised forgiveness, and then walking with him again. Next week we're going to spend a lot more specific time reading about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in John chapters 14, 15, and 16, both in the world and in the church. The Holy Spirit has a ministry in the world through us. It also has a ministry in the church, in our own hearts, and in our interpersonal relationships. In the meantime, let's try to apply what we already know. Just step out in faith to live in obedience to your Savior. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, we'd ask that you teach our hearts to trust you so we'd walk with you, so we'd receive your gift of peace on a daily basis, that we would walk with you in joy, getting up in the morning, glad to be with you, going to bed at night, glad to be with you, walking during the daytime, glad to be working with you in your garden, glad to be reaching out to the people of the world by your Holy Spirit. <clears throat> We'd ask that you'd use, your, use us, use your church to reach the world around us, raise us up to serve as your ambassadors and to serve in the newness of life. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you've been warned. Next week we're going to be talking John 14, 15, and 16 on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So that's not what you want to hear, then don't.